We return this week to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 17 through 26. Found in the church Bible on page 1185. Luke chapter 5. Hear the word of our God. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find out how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. But the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed. And they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful account. We pray that we would respond to it not only with wonderment, but with faith. Faith in your Son whom we long to see and hear as we gaze upon his word. We ask it in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. I kept having a word pop into my mind this week as as I thought about this passage, a a phrase that we hear in the the modern church a lot, seeker-sensitive. Obviously, this is not a church that has made seeker-sensitive its uh, method. Exhibit A. Um, I, I wish I could hand you all cups of Starbucks and an ice cream cone after church, but uh, we won't even have that. See, seeker-sensitive. Uh, but, but this is a passage where there are seekers, and there are more than one type of seeker. 
And Christ has one approach and one method that he uses here. It's the same he uses throughout his ministry for all the various types of seekers, which means that a lot of the seekers are going to go home disappointed, frustrated, or angry. And so I want us to just think about that as we gaze at this text, that there's this amazing miracle that takes place And then there are these different responses to it. And we need to think about what our responses are when we gaze at Christ and when we come face to face with him. And uh, first, then, let's consider those who seek Jesus or show an interest in Jesus. There are two broad categories in our text. We'll start with the positive one. There are those who believe. They come seeking Jesus because they Believe something specific about Jesus. Like the leper in the previous passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, here we find men who don't question whether Jesus can heal. Remember, the leper didn't question whether Jesus could heal. He wondered if Jesus would heal. And so his mission was to get right next to Jesus and find out. We have the same thing going on here. Here are men who aren't questioning whether Jesus can heal this man who is uh, stuck in his bed, unable to move. Their issue is, can we get to him? And finding, of course, as you all know, you know from Sunday school class, you know from storybooks, uh, you know because we just literally read it, that uh, they, they aren't able to get through the door. Um, this mentality in the, the Jewish culture of uh, meeting in an upper room. When we talk about the upper room discourse right before Jesus died, often a, a building would have the big uh, kind of dining room slash living room area on a, a top floor. It was kind of a meeting room for your guests. And so it's not even just trying to get in to, to the, the hallway, it would be to get to Jesus, you probably had to get inside and go up some steps and get through the crowd into the big meeting room, and they can't even get in through the front door. But we, we see their, their beautiful zeal. They, they come boldly to Jesus. They go up, whether there were outside steps or whether they had to do something with a ladder and Passing the man up, uh, probably through uh, over two floors of a house to get to the roof. And there we have this word tiling in Luke. And so it's a little unclear what what the roof was like. Uh, Many scholars say that most of the roofs were just um, leaves and mud and branches and you could have broken it away. But Luke uses the word tiling. So it's possible that this was a nicer house that had a flat roof with actual tiles that you could pry up. And so they pry up the tiles. What did they do with the tiles? Were they able to pry them up whole and make a nice, or did they have to break them? And here's Jesus talking and there's parts of roofing tiles falling down on your head from above. But we we aren't told, but it's clear whatever they did, there's a lot of zeal, zeal that's driven by faith genuine faith that Jesus is able to save this man, to heal him, if only they can get him 
before Jesus. And so they do this task zealously. In the Gospels, this kind of zealous faith invites Christ's miraculous working. And it's possible that that's what Luke is trying to bring us to when he uses this uh, otherwise a little strange phrase. We don't exactly know what to do with it in verse 17. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. It's possible what Luke is saying is that it's present to heal because there's this zealous faith that's just inviting Christ to action. There are those who believe. In fact, there are five who believe in this passage, at least. This is an important point. Uh, You will often hear people make a big deal, a contrast point out of verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said to him. And sometimes people will say, this is a contrast. The there is the four friends who are carrying the man And because of four people's faith, Jesus heals, or forgives actually, a fifth man. As if that fifth man isn't a man of faith. That's just bad exegesis. I know a lot of of pastors go there. And it's almost an Americana theology now, I think. If you know what I mean by that. There are these things that in the American church we've heard someone say so many times that we all just assume it's good exegesis when there's not actually anything behind it in the original text. And I think this is one of those things we hear. I can even hear certain accented American voices on the radio saying that it's the faith of the four that heals the fifth man. But that's not how the Greek grammar works. That's as absurd as saying that four of them wanted Jesus to heal this man but this man didn't want to be healed. Well, well, there's nothing in the text that says that either. Surely the most uh, simple way to read this text would be to say, here's a man who is utterly helpless. He can't get to Jesus, but he wants to. And his friends help him get to the healer. And for every, everything in the text, we should say that if that's the case then he, we can also say this man also has faith in Christ and in who Christ is and longs to be forgiven. And that's why Christ, who reads the hearts and the mind, forgives. I think especially the fact that Christ leads with forgiveness, not healing, indicates that it cannot simply be the faith of the four men. It has to be the faith of all five men. Because in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it's very emphatic that no individual is forgiven of their sins because of other people's faith. I was just thinking of one text in relation to this this week. Romans 10 verse 9 tells us how we'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead... You will be saved. It's not if you believe someone else will be saved. The New Testament, it's always a personal faith that leads to the forgiveness of sins by Jesus Christ. 
And so here we have a man who believes, he believes if he can get to Christ, he'll be healed. But I think more than that, he believes that Christ is the Messiah who can forgive his sins. And with him are four others. Now that's not insignificant. I'll let you chew on it a little more yourself. Maybe this afternoon, think about the significance that the body of Christ, our fellow believers, play in our walk with God. Because there are so many things we are incapable of. And there is so much discouragement and giving up that we would have if not for fellow saints coming alongside us in our faith and coming with us to God and with us to the throne of grace to ask for help for us in time of need. Here we have five who are true seekers. They seek because they believe. But there are other seekers in the passage as well. There are others who have an interest in Jesus. Notice verse 17. We're told that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by. Pharisees, we could maybe say the Pharisees were the Puritan party and the the teachers of the law were the Bible scholars. There's overlap between those two camps, um, but they they are those who are kind of uh, lay lay enthusiasts about their faith. They want to take it really seriously. But maybe we could even say the Pharisees had a strong emphasis on wanting to be disciples of God. They got a lot of things wrong in that process, but they were very enthusiastic. And the teachers of the law, those who dug into the Bible and sought to express what God's will is for disciples. And here they are. They're forming this great crowd around Jesus. Notice, though, that they've come from all of Galilee, which is probably the district he's in at this moment, and all Judea, and even from Jerusalem. In other words, they didn't just happen to be passing by and think, I wonder who's talking in that room over there. I'll go and see. We're being told by Luke they were seekers. They were even zealous. They traveled great distance at great pains and great personal expense to be with Jesus. But not out of faith for all of them. No doubt for some of them, but for some of them what they're seeking is not Christ the Messiah. They've traveled a great distance and yet we find in this passage that they are drawn for other reasons. What is their interest in Christ? Maybe it's an interest in Christ who is that guy who seems to be doing a lot of healing. I hope you understand there's a difference between that and believing in Christ. We can see it in the church today as well, can't we? Someone is sick. We find out a faith healer or something and We go to great difficulty to get them to some service where there's a faith healer. There's not really an interest in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an interest in not being sick anymore or seeing our loved one no longer in the wheelchair 
or whatever the thing might be. It's not exactly the same. Maybe that's their interest. Maybe it's interest in a fad. This guy, Jesus. Have you heard of all? Wow. You know, a few years back, I was ticking through in my head. Who who are some of the, the great musicians of like, the 70s and 80s that were still doing concerts that I I wanted to see, not because I think they're still great musicians, but because someday they're not going to be around and it'd be cool to be able to say, I was at one of his concerts. A lot of people have that kind of mentality with a a big name. Here's Jesus. He's going around. He's, He's the preacher. Let's travel and hear him. But it, it's not faith that's driving them. It's a, it's a fad. I think it's also clear from the Gospels, even the accounts of this very story in this and other Gospels, that for some of them, the interest is a negative interest. The ones I've just listed are positive, aren't they? They're not the, the right faith in Christ, but at least there's a positive reason for seeking them out. But the Gospels make clear that many were seeking him for negative reasons. They were envious of him. I'm a teacher of the law. No one's following me around like they're following Jesus. I've got to go disprove him. Uh, a couple months ago, there was the, uh, the revival. It was Kentucky, I think. There was the, you know, the, the revival going on at a college and whatever your opinions on that, one of the things that bothered me was those who didn't believe it was a real revival going there to prove it wasn't a real revival. What a, why would you do that? If God's doing a great work, praise God. If it's not God, keep serving God where you're at. Why, why, why go and, and create this fuss? But there have always been those in the church who are interested in tearing down and and not just confronting that which is wrong in the church, which we need to do at times and in the right ways, but there have always been some who are just interested in proving all other Christians aren't right. Well, there were some Pharisees who weren't looking at what Jesus did and say, wow, look at the revival going on in the land. I don't really like this Jesus guy, but at least there are people taking an interest in worshiping Yahweh again. At least there are lepers who are now back at worship. What an amazing thing. No, we have to tear him down because he's not us. He's not part of my sect of the Pharisees. He doesn't keep my laws for these various things. One commentator even says that their interest is in destruction. And we see that more and more the deeper we get into the Gospels, don't we? They want to destroy Christ. I was thinking about that. And all the things that Peter and Jude and Paul in the New Testament say about false teachers. Do you ever wonder why someone would just be a part of a church and cause so much division and clearly not really believe the Gospel why do you, I, I, I sometimes I think, why would you get out of bed on Sunday morning? Why wouldn't you go to the beach more on Sundays instead of being in a church? 
These are the things I think. If I, if I wasn't seeking Christ out of real faith, I'd be on the side of Monadnock instead of here. Uh, th- there's so much else to do in life. But in the New Testament, we find the, the wolves in sheep's clothing coming into the church to destroy. There's a zeal connected with it. There's a faith. It's just not a faith in Christ. And here we find many seeking him out of any number of these these false motivations or these harmful motivations. I think this is very important to note, not so we can look at the evangelical church of our day and criticize and nitpick, but so that we can examine our own hearts when we get out of bed on Sunday morning, when we go to church. What are we seeking? Who are we seeking? Why are we seeking Christ? Well, we don't know about other people, what is in their heart. But we do find in the text that Jesus knows the difference. He knows. He perceives. He is able to divide. In fact, he does so more than we see in the text. He knows exactly the number of real believers in that room. We know there were at least five. But remember, the apostles were there. Other real disciples We're not given their number, but Christ knows each one with real faith and each one with a false motive. And so we see in our text that Jesus sees the faith. Verse 20, he sees their faith and he declares, man, your sins are forgiven you. Everyone sees the zeal that they put into that moment, right? Anyone can see see the zeal of carrying a man up on a building and ripping the roof off. It's not your home. And the expense you're incurring, you'll probably have to fix it. Anyone can see the zeal, but not all can read their hearts. Christ doesn't say when he sees their zeal, your sins are forgiven. He says when he sees into their very hearts, your sins are forgiven. Jesus deals not with the lesser issue first, but with the greater. This man has two problems. He has a sin issue and and he's stuck on this cot and cannot walk. And Christ cares about both of these issues, but he has a clear mindset to deal with the greater issue first. Like an ER doctor. There's someone with a a broken leg, and, and their brain is hemorrhaging. Which do you deal with first? Well, you deal first with the thing that's going to kill them if you don't deal with it. And then you step back and you can work on the other things. Christ first heals this man spiritually before he heals him physically. I think it's also notable here that the man's situation doesn't excuse his sin. If we want to talk about the church today, that's the gospel of the church today, isn't it? If you can just present a good enough excuse for why you are the sinner you are, it excuses the sin. Well, my parents didn't treat me well. 
I, I had this physical problem. I was in a poor situation. All of which are horrible realities, all of which are things that Christ cares about. And indeed, he has given deacons to the church to make sure that we don't forget about these things on his behalf. But do these things excuse sin? Does Christ say, well, how could anyone have expected anything else from you? You're stuck in a cot all the time. You can't walk. Of course, you envied people in your heart. Of course, you were bitter against all those children you saw running by when you sat unable to move. Of course, who could expect anything else? Though, what does Jesus say? You're a sinner, but I forgive you. He deals with the sin. He doesn't change his message because of this man's hardships. He doesn't change it to fit the seeker or to make it more palatable. He deals with the eternal issue first. Your sins are great. They are like scarlet. But I see your faith. They shall be white as snow. The best news, not only for this man, but for us as well. We, we need to know that our Savior forgives sins. That he is more interested in your eternal life than in the comforts of this current life. One is passing, the other remains. He cares about both, but he keeps the right priority. He won't leave you feeling good today, only for you to suffer eternal punishment later. He calls us to faith and repentance so that the first and priority may be forgiven. One author puts it like this, our felt need or physical needs may be great, but they are never as great as our need for forgiveness. He is able and he is willing. Don't doubt, he will forgive. He sees the faith. He also sees the hearts of those who do not believe. Verse 22, he perceived their thoughts. I think that's a really important phrase because otherwise we might read the text and think that everyone was loudly grumbling about what he had said and everyone knew what everyone else was grumbling about. But Luke is showing us, the Holy Spirit's showing us that everyone is having an internal discussion. They may even have smiles on their faces or neutral looks on their faces, but inside they're saying, what a blasphemous man. Who is this to claim he can forgive sins? Now, we, we should note that if, no proofs of who Christ was had been given or were being given, that that is absolutely the right conclusion for them to have come to. No one can forgive sins except God. If Christ had not proved himself many times to this point, 
it would have been blasphemy. I also think we need to note, (coughs) excuse me, we need to note uh, what we might not always catch, that Christ forgives sins without any reference to the temple, without any reference to the man bringing a blood sacrifice through a rightly ordained priest to receive the forgiveness of sins. That's the way God had always required it to be done in the Old Testament. So if Jesus isn't God, they are right to say blasphemy. He's offering something that he, if he were just a man, does not have the right to offer. Question is, does he have this authority? Jesus gets right to it in case they missed who he was saying he was. He says in verse 24, but that you might know that I, no, he uses a very, very powerful phrase that you might know that the son of man, we spent some time on that a few weeks back. I won't dig into it again fully, except to remind you, Daniel seven shows the son of man is this divine figure who receives all glory, power, and authority at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. That alone would have been blasphemy to claim about yourself if Christ wasn't actually the Son of Man. He is making it very clear so that you might know that I, the divine Messiah, that's what he's saying, have the authority to forgive sins on earth. I'm going to do something else on earth as well. Which is easier? Which is easier, he asks, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? The the answer should be obvious. The one cannot be empirically proven or disproven. Until the day of judgment, until we reach heaven, if someone says your sins are forgiven, we have no way to know and verify if that's actually been the case. But the other one can be proven right away. If I say, fly out of the door this morning, and you don't fly out through the door this morning, it's empirically proven I don't have the power to give flight. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. A man who's never been able to walk or who is broken in front of you, who even if there was some form of, of earthly healing, would require months of physical therapy to heal these muscles to the point and strengthen them to the point of walking. There's no way this man should be able to walk. So you'll know right away if he's healed or not. Get up, take up your mat and walk. Notice the beauty of this. His friends are still upstairs, so they can't carry the, the, the stretcher home. They're still stuck upstairs. Presumably they haven't gotten into the room. The man doesn't crowd surf to the door where then his friends will carry him home. He gets up. Possibly looks up at his friends and says, thanks guys, I'll take it from here. He picks up his stretcher himself and pushes his way through the crowd. 
Where's the atrophy? Where's the brokenness and the weakness and the need for physical therapy? None of it. Immediately, Christ has proven in a very powerful way that he has power on earth to heal that which is utterly broken. And he's saying, therefore, that which is unseen is proven. That I also have the authority on earth to forgive sins. This this proof isn't just given for them. This is recorded in three Gospels. So that you might be certain that Jesus Christ has authority on earth as he does in heaven to forgive your sins. And with that, if you haven't repented, you ought to know he also has the ability to read your heart. Forty years sitting in a church on Sunday mornings, you might might convince others of your faith, even if it's not true. But you will not trick Christ. But praise God, the Christ who can see your heart. The Christ who, having saved you, continues to know even those sins that you have hidden away so deep that you don't even think about them anymore or realize them. The root of bitterness and spite or envy or uh, covetousness or gluttony or whatever the thing is that you've pressed down into the dark corners of your heart, he who has forgiven also continues to see and he continues to forgive those who believe who trust in and rest upon him alone for salvation as he offers himself to you in this gospel. Douglas Sean O'Donnell says, forgiveness of sins is our deepest need and through it, Christ is God's, uh, and through Christ, forgiveness is God's highest achievement. Have you considered that? Whatever you wish you could have healed or friend you wish you could see fully get up and walk or whatever the thing might be. And we should certainly be praying for healing for people. But the greatest and deepest need is forgiveness. And through Christ, God the Father has achieved it. Why are you seeking Christ? Why do you interest yourself in him? Is it faith that he is who he says he is and is able to save to the uttermost you and all others who believe?